If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Across the course of the 20th century, Britain's empire reached its peak and then began to disintegrate. Yet, according to historian Charlotte Lydia Riley, Even in the era of decolonisation, the country was still indelibly shaped by an imperial mindset. I spoke to Charlotte about her new book, Imperial Island, and where she still sees the imprint of empire in Britain today. But before we start, if you're a fan of the show, we've got a quick favour to ask. We'd love to hear from you about the episodes or guests that you've particularly enjoyed. So please leave us a review wherever you listen. So thank you so much for joining me to talk about your new book, Imperial Island, which looks at how imperialism and its collapse has shaped Britain since the Second World War. In the introduction to the book, you say, this book seeks to set out why people in Britain today should care about their nation's imperial past. So I think that that's a really good place to start. Why should we care about our imperial past? That's a really good question. And I think there are a couple of reasons why we should care about our imperial past in Britain, beyond the sense that, you know, I'm a historian, and I think we should care about the past generally. And, you know, I think listeners of this podcast probably think that it's, it's worthwhile trying to know more about history, right? But I think in Britain, generally, there's been almost like a peak and a trough in knowledge about imperial history. So for a long time in Britain, empire was part of our popular culture in a way that was very obvious and explicit. And so, for example, children in schools would study under a map on the wall that had, you know, the empire marked out in pink and people knew a lot about imperialism and the empire was very familiar to them. And that was often a very celebratory moment and people were often very celebratory about Britain's imperial conquest and about imperial expansion and things like that. And then I think after decolonisation, what happened is there was gradually this kind of decline in talking about empire and imperialism and and a sort of silence and an ignorance about the way in which empire had shaped 
British society and, and culture and, and politics. And that kind of was illustrated in all sorts of ways, particularly in the book I talk about how you can only really talk about immigration to Britain by talking about imperialism and by knowing about imperial history. And so I think the reason that British people need to think more more closely and more carefully and, and just have more information about Britain's imperial past is because it shapes so much about Britain, both empire and decolonisation. And we need to have a knowledge of it that's that's kind of clear-eyed rather than this either very celebratory knowledge or, or this kind of silencing where we just don't talk about what happened. So as you say, here you're really looking at an era in which empire was disintegrating or had disintegrated and decolonization was happening. So how did the empire continue to shape the face of Britain when in many ways it, it no longer existed? I think that's a really good question because I, I point out at the beginning of the book that the actual kind of territorial high point of imperialism, the moment at which empire was at its biggest, was like 1929. So we think about empire as being something very 19th century, but actually it's less than 100 years ago, actually, that the empire was at its biggest extent. And I think that shapes the way that people talk about it because they tend to think of empire as something that happened long ago. But actually decolonization is this really long drawn out process. So you have Indian independence and the independence of the Indian, what's called the subcontinent in at the end of the Second World War. And then you have this moment of kind of African and Caribbean independence in the 1960s largely. But then actually South Rhodesia doesn't really properly become independent until 1980. You've got the legacy of imperialism in South Africa with apartheid, which doesn't finish until the 1990s, um, the Falklands War in 1982. So I think firstly, you know, it, it continues to shape popular culture because it's just happening for a really long time. And it's this really kind of present backdrop to a lot of what Britain is going through in the 20th century. And I think it also really shapes Britain today because many of the kind of institutions and structures as well as people in Britain are here because of empire right a lot of the ways that we organize British society are kind of rooted in imperialism a lot of the organizations in Britain have kind of imperial roots uh, a lot of universities have imperial roots a lot of schools and museums and all of these sort of things have these connections to empire and then obviously you have people living in Britain whose family had connections to empire in all sorts of ways and so when you start to think about it it's very difficult to look backwards at empire and say you know that's something that was like over and done with that's something that happened in the past it's really I think something that you can kind of see all around you today. So I wonder if we can start where you start your book really which is the second world war a really important moment I think in this story can you tell us about the connections between the second world war and empire did it create a sense of, of connection and shared experience between Britain and the colonies? Or did it in other ways reinforce divisions? So yes, <laughs> in, in both ways, definitely. So I think both things are happening at the time, but also both things are being kind of a narrative about both angles is being crafted in the moment at the time. So on one hand, you have this real sense in the Second World War at different points that, you know, this is a moment when the empire is pulling together. People talk about the, you know, the incredible contribution made by the dominions and the colonies in terms of resources, in terms of manpower. 
in terms of support for Britain. Churchill sometimes speaks about the empire as being something that is, you know, very important in resisting Nazism and fascism. You know, this is like liberal imperialism and we're something different and, and we're all kind of pulling together to do that. And for many people in Britain, the Second World War is their first point of direct contact with empire, either through people who've come from the empire to Britain or because they are themselves fighting in spaces in the empire, so fighting in North Africa, for example. On the other hand... The Second World War is also a moment where Britain is really crafting this narrative of standing alone against the Nazis, right? Particularly in kind of summer 1940, after the fall of France. America hasn't entered the war yet. And there's this idea that Britain is kind of standing up uh, this tiny island, you know, resisting fascism in the whole of Europe. And there's a very famous cartoon to that effect, a David Lowe cartoon, which shows a, a soldier kind of shaking his fist at the sky at the White Cliffs of Dover, and it says, very well, alone. And it was very powerful at the time, you know, people really responded to this. But then a, about a month later, another cartoonist, Cyril Fugas, drew a, a cartoon for Punch, where he showed two soldiers, they're kind of lounging on, on the cliffs, it's clearly kind of a summer's day, and one of them says, you know, we're, we're all alone in the world, poor Britain all alone in the world, and the other one says, oh yes, you know, all 500 million of us. So... Even at the time, people were kind of pointing out that, you know, Britain standing alone is it's not a tiny island nation. It's an empire that covers a quarter of the globe. And I think that dual narrative is actually really important because when people look back to the Second World War, there is sometimes an acknowledgement that the empire kind of supported Britain. Although very little sense, I think, of, of how much people from colonies sacrificed during the Second World War. But on the other hand, I think there's often a sense of Britain being this kind of plucky little fighter. And that elides the history of imperialism. It, it, it kind of underplays Britain's geopolitical strength at that point, which possibly shapes, I think, the way people think about empire after that as well. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Something that you do in the book is to try and unpick the, the psyche and the feelings of quote-unquote normal, ordinary people. I mean, you interrogate how there is no such thing as an ordinary person. But if we are to kind of go with that idea, how aware were, quote, ordinary people of the empire in the mid-20th centuries? Did it affect their day-to-day their -day lives or was it something that was happening far away over there, oh, out of sight, out of mind? So I think it definitely affected people's day-to-day -day lives. I think, you know, a big part of my argument is that the fabric of British society is interwoven with imperialism in, in the middle of the Second World War and afterwards. But I don't think that necessarily means people were consciously thinking about it. So you have some particular moments where people are really kind of drawn to think about imperialism. So, for example, with the decolonisation of India and Indian independence, and people are really kind of talking and thinking about Britain's role in India and, and their relationship to the subcontinent. But that doesn't necessarily mean that people have any real sense of what imperialism in India meant 
for the British. They don't really understand the kind of economic history of that relationship. They might not necessarily think very carefully or with very much knowledge about what the Indian population is like or how they experienced empire. One of the things I read in, in the book is children's books. And, and there's some really nice ladybird books, which are about kind of about decolonization. They're about places around the empire in the 1960s. And the one about India is really kind of heavy on the, oh, it's all tigers and jungles and you know, this this sort of, it's a mystical place full of mystical people. And, and you really get that sense that you can have this sort of slightly paradoxical thing where people on one hand live in a culture that's really suffused with imperialism and on the other hand that almost makes it harder for them to look at it closely because it is kind of just part and parcel of what it means to be British at this point. So it's difficult for them to interrogate it and the messages that they get from schools and the messages that they get in popular culture are, are quite one way often in this moment. And as we move into the 1950s and 60s, we see people immigrating from across the empire to Britain in greater numbers than ever before. Can you tell us a bit about some of those new communities that were being established in British cities and what it was like for those early arrivals? Obviously, there's a huge diversity of experience here, but there might be some common threads, I guess. Yeah, I think it's really interesting and important to think about the fact that this migration is, like, the numbers are much bigger after the Second World War. You have the British Nationality Act in 1948, which doesn't actually give anyone any rights, but it codifies the rights that people around the empire had to live in Britain. It creates a kind of new category of citizenship, which which reaffirms the right that people from empire have to live in the metropole. And from 1948 until 1962, there is no limit on migration from the empire to Britain, right? If you're an imperial citizen, you're an imperial subject, you're someone who can live and work in Britain in the UK. And so there's this kind of moment, obviously, where these numbers really increase. And to start with, this migration is very heavily weighted towards West Indian community. And this is true right to the end of the 1950s, actually, that when you look at figures, so I think in 1957, there's about 40,000 people come to Britain from around the empire. And I think about half of those people come from the West Indies. So it's quite heavily Caribbean. And then obviously you have people from India and Pakistan who come at the point of partition when India is made independent and then kind of come throughout. Um, you have people from Africa, obviously people, as I've said, from the Caribbean, from different places around the Caribbean. And then migrants from other places as well. You have migrants from Cyprus, for example, and migrants from Hong Kong. Migration with the Dominion, so that's the kind of white settler colonies, um, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, that's more of an outward flow, actually, during the 1950s. British people are kind of going to these places to make new lives. White British people, Australia in particular, has a very kind of stringent migration policy called the White Australia Policy, which means it's white British people are particularly welcome to go to Australia. White British people seem to talk about immigration during the 1950s without ever really acknowledging that they are also a nation of migrants. There's this huge outflow as well as a huge inflow that that never really comes up. Right. When people talk about imperial immigration, they're, they're talking about to Britain and they're talking about people of colour. And so, yeah, you get communities like Cardiff, for example, who have had a very diverse community for a long time. Places like London, obviously, Glasgow. But then you get sort of new spots of migration. So, for example, Bradford and Leicester become centres of Asian migration. And you get this kind of layering of migration as well. So there's a there's an example of Brick Lane, for example, which often becomes a space that new migrant communities come to. And actually, this had originally been in the 15th century. You get Protestants from France coming to Brick Lane and then Jewish migration. And then you get Asian migration. And then I think more recently, kind of Somali migration. So you sometimes get areas where 
that become kind of places where new migrants come. And then when those communities get established, they, they start to move off and you get kind of newer people coming in. And then obviously you have kind of dock spaces. Docks are very important centres of migration. And that also means that in the 1940s, 1950s, docks are sites of racial violence as well, because they're spots where people are kind of coming into the country and where white British people often have a very ambivalent relationship with this and and so you get for example in Liverpool riots in 1948 you get kind of disturbances and and the rise of kind of racist anti-immigration politics and things often in dock cities as well as other places. And these instances as you say of race riots, racism and anti-immigration sentiment and things like the National Front you look at in your book how are you connecting those things to empire what's the line that you draw there it's interesting because writing the book i'd be sitting in archives and i'd be following stories through and i'd have to remind myself that this is a book that is premised on empire and i'd sometimes find myself kind of having to ask myself exactly the same question i'm reading this story about racism i'm reading this this account of race riots and this is this is a story about the history of racism in britain and how how do i connect this to empire how does this fit into an imperial narrative it's sometimes really explicit in the sources, actually. So it's sometimes very explicit that people say, you know, I want these people to go back to the colonies or there's particularly on the far right, even in kind of the right wing of the Conservative Party, for example, into the 1960s, there's the Monday Club starts to think about what they call voluntary repatriation to the colonies for people of colour. So there's definitely this sense of like racism which is framed around the idea that well these people have come from the empire and we could just put them back there you know why do we have to let them into the metropole i think there needs to be a sort of an explicit understanding that racism in britain is built often on very imperial attitudes towards white superiority empire is is justified by white supremacy that you know empire only makes sense if you think that white people are more civilized more educated more skilled than people of color because that's the justification for going to these places and taking power that racism really shaped the development of racial hierarchies in britain in the 19th century and it really continues into the 20th century and it continues after decolonization and attitudes to migrants from the commonwealth in the 1960s and 70s and 80s are really reflective of imperial attitudes in earlier periods. So you see, for example, in the 1960s and 1970s, migrant communities in Britain start to become activists focused on the experience of their children in schools in Britain, that you know children from communities of colour, children with imperial heritage are often finding school very difficult in Britain. They're often being either explicitly discriminated against um, by the school system or they are, you know, facing racism in the classroom or in the playground. And and so parents and activist groups start to kind of agitate around this. And there's a book, for example, by a man called Bernard Coward called How the Education System Makes a West Indian Child Educationally Subnormal. And this is entirely kind of premised around the idea that the British education system is is framed from this imperial perspective and essentially sees children from the Caribbean as being less academically able than white children. And that completely shapes their experience of, of school. They're much more likely to be excluded. They're much more likely to be put in the bottom set, as well as kind of facing explicit racism. They're also just being kind of constantly assumed to be less intelligent than their white peers. And it's totally framed by imperialism. It's totally framed by the work of 
colonial administrators in the 19th century and 20th century when they were out in in the colonies and talking and writing about colonial people. So I think there's there's lots of ways that this kind of racism is rooted in empire and some of it's very explicit and some of it's more to do with the kind of way that cultures in Britain are imperial. And I'm intrigued as to how this like imperial mindset shaped the attitudes of people who migrated to Britain across the 20th century. Did these people view themselves in general as as imperial subjects? Did they view themselves as British citizens? How did they conceptualise the idea of Britishness and the idea of empire? And how did those kind of things intertwine? You often, when you're reading the accounts of people who are coming to Britain, you often see this huge moment of disillusionment because they had been you know, put through school systems in the colonies where they'd been told, you know, you're part of the British Empire. They'd learned about, you know, what they often refer to as the mother country. They often talk about England as the mother country or Britain. You you know, you see lots of accounts of people saying, oh, you know, I I could name all of the lakes in the Lake District in my village school in Kenya. I could could tell you the name of every river in England. You know, this is what... But their, their kind of education was totally framed about learning around England and Britain but actually predominantly England. And they had this real sense of, you know, you're part of kind of, particularly into the sort of mid 20th century, you're part of this imperial community. And then they come to Britain and they find themselves unwelcome and they find themselves a target of of real explicit racism. And so for a lot of people, there's this real moment of kind of psychic crisis, I think. The writer Donald Hines, who wrote a, a memoir about his migration called Journey to an Illusion, which is a title which gives you a kind of sense of his feelings about this. He's... Part of, loosely kind of part of the Windrush generation and he interviewed lots of his friends about migration and one of the accounts in the book is about coming to Britain and seeing white British street sweepers it's like white men cleaning the streets in London and and the narrative is like you know this person's heart just sinks because he says if this is the kind of jobs that white people are doing in the UK what you know what jobs are there for, they're not going to give us jobs right they're not going to be happy with us being their bosses and if if these jobs are being done by white people, we're not going to be included in this. We're going to be completely excluded. There's often, as well, at the end of the Second World War, this migration to Britain. And obviously, you know, there's been huge amounts of bond damage in the cities and there's rationing in Britain until the early 1950s and, you know, quite a lot of you know, real deprivation. And the 47 to 48 and 48 to 49 were horrible winters as well. And people come to Britain and go, well, this is... This is the mother like this has been running an empire right this country that's like poor it's it's gray you know there's no food in the shops there's you know what this like this is what we were being told was this wonderful beacon of civilization so as well as the kind of explicit racism and racism and discrimination that people face when they get to britain there's often this real kind of disconnect between what they were being told about Britain and the empire and what they actually kind of see with their own eyes. There's quite a lot of examination of the post-war era and decolonisation and the connections between the two. But something I have heard less about is the 1980s in reference to empire. Moving into the 1980s, what are some of the ways that you think imperialism influenced British culture in that decade? So I have, I think my chapter on the 1980s is called something like Britain wins the war and feeds the world or something. I picked these kind of three moments, which are the Falklands War in 1982, Band Aid and Live Aid in 1984, 1985, and then the anti-apartheid movement, which obviously um, you have Mandela released from prison in 1990 and then the free elections in 1994. So obviously apartheid is rooted in British imperialism or it's rooted in European imperialism because you have both the Africana and the British kind of cultures in South Africa really underpinning the white government. 
Britain has a really complicated relationship with with South Africa and apartheid in that there's often a kind of lip service against apartheid. Harold Macmillan's Winds of Change speech in 1960 is, is framed actually around the idea that apartheid isn't something that the British can support. But then on the other hand, you know, British governments often continue to trade with South Africa, include, you know, up to selling them kind of military hardware and things like this. So that these kind of this kind of lip service critique is often quite minor. And actually Thatcher in the 1980s is, is notably very reticent to impose any kind of boycotts and sanctions on South Africa. So you have the kind of governments doing one thing and then British people in, in from the 1940s, 50s, 60s, up until the 1980s, some think apartheid is fine, some are supportive of it, but you have quite a lot of anti-apartheid activism in Britain. And a lot of those activists are quite kind of cognizant of the idea that actually Britain has a kind of duty here, right, that compared to other European countries, Britain should be trying to do something about apartheid, British people should, because there is a history there and there's a connection. And then the Falklands War is really interesting because it is, in some ways, a real anachronism. Stuart Hall kind of, at the time, wrote about it as this being this weird throwback to, uh, like, a naval imperial war in the 1980s. It's a long way away. It's almost like a 19th century imperial war when it's happening. Uh, You know, the Queen's son goes out to fight there. There's this sort of sense of fighting over an island. In some ways, it's, it's also perhaps... It's a kind of relief for the British people because it's an imperial war which doesn't involve an indigenous population. It's the white Falklanders want to stay part of the British Empire and they want Britain to support them. So in some ways it's an imperial war that is easier to support than some of the previous ones and perhaps a little bit more uncomplicatedly a war in which Britain is the goodies, which I think after kind of decades of decolonisation is perhaps a relief to some people. And the, the kind of coverage of that is very imperial often. And then I, I wrote about Live Aid and Band Aid and humanitarian efforts. And I started, but you know, Michael Burke's very famous television report for the Six O'Clock News when he's walking through Korem in Ethiopia and he's talking about the, the, this terrible famine and the effect it's having on the population there and, and the way that people like Bob Geldof saw this and thought, you know, we need to do something. And it's a really interesting moment because on one hand, it's a moment of real generosity on behalf of the British people. There's this incredible outpouring of support, you know, huge amount of money is donated. But it's also very interesting because at the time, organisations like Oxfam, for example, point out that actually the British government has been complicit in this war. The relationship to kind of suffering people in Ethiopia is aesthetically very similar to that of empire. And particularly the kind of use of starving children is often used to kind of justify British involvement in Ethiopia in a way that's really kind of echoes previous imperial narratives and campaigns. And more generally, you know, the British people are very generous when it comes to live aid, but there's not a huge amount of reflection at the time of why not just Ethiopia, but, you know, this often gets rolled up at the time, kind of Africa, Africa is poor, right? African poverty. And there's very little circumspection about, like, why? Why is Africa poor? And the idea that British people might have money to donate, you know, in a roundabout way because Africa is poor, right? Britain is rich because Africa is poor and vice versa. That has very little analysis in the moment. It's very hard to criticise at the time, you know, this moment of kind of British outpouring. But actually... The kind of geopolitics behind this sort of narrative of, of, you know, poor Africa and Africans who have to be helped by British charity never really gets interrogated. And I think there, there are lots of ways in which that's actually quite profoundly imperial. How do you see this comparing to the experience of other nations with similar histories, other nations that had empires? 
it's always interesting to compare because there is a kind of trope within Britain that Britain had the the most civilised empire, the most humanitarian empire and the best decolonisation, right? And it's not uncommon, actually, to read the kind of books that are set for school children or even kind of undergraduates and to see kind of quite flippant assertions that Britain's decolonisation was far cleaner than other. And it's because people are thinking particularly of France and the war in Algeria and the Vietnam War and things like this, and, you know, this kind of old Portugal with its you know, doesn't decolonise at Mozambique and Angola until the late 1970s, 1980s. But Britain had the, you know, the largest empire of any of these European countries. It has, in many ways, a very violent decolonisation process. Um, you've got Malaya, you've got Kenya, you've got the, the violence of partition in India and Pakistan when that decolonisation happens. And then in terms of memories, I think a lot of European nations are struggling with this. Like how, how do we think about this? A lot of European people, uh, particularly white European people, are quite resistant to thinking about empire as being something that might be a bad thing or as just as something that might have had victims or something that shouldn't be a moment of, of national celebration. It's interesting in Belgium, they have recently spent a huge amount of money kind of reconfiguring their museum of imperialism essentially it was very supportive of the empire really kind of fit into this narrative of congo having been civilized by the belgians and helped and things and it will be interesting to see what what the new one is like but you know in france as well they've had the very similar debates that we have here about statues about slave traders they have quite similar debates around statues to do with people in the algerian war the commemoration of that and it's still a very controversial war within French history about you know is this a civil war is this a a, a kind of an uprising are these people freedom fighters or terrorists so it's a it's a debate that's playing out across Europe I think there's some things that are very distinctly British about our narrative but in some ways this is kind of an imperial story. A lot of the debates around empire today especially those on the internet let's be honest are incredibly charged and incredibly heated do you think that there's any way that we can come together for a more constructive conversation about dealing with the past? Or do you think that the two sides of this debate are are too polarised to be able to find common ground on that? It's interesting because I guess it sort of depends what you'd want to achieve by that. I mean, I, I saw Sathan Sanghera in a recent interview saying he'd basically stopped doing events in Britain talking about his book, Empire Land, because he just gets so much personalised abuse. And, you know, there's certainly a way in which we could say, look, you know, that's not okay, right? We have to be able to have talk about our national past without it descending into kind of name calling or worse, you know, sometimes like actual kind of threats. On the other hand, I think there's a tendency sometimes, and I think this sometimes comes from non-historians who have heard a little bit when historians kind of talk about history being interpretation. And so non-historians often think that that means that there's no right answer, right? History's interpretation, there's no right answer. And so it might mean that you could kind of have two accounts that are wildly different, say one account that kind of celebrates British imperialism and one that's quite critical of British imperialism, or at least isn't celebratory. And you could kind of say, okay, well, let's try and, you know, find some middle ground. But I'm not really interested in finding that middle ground. I, I don't want to move my book or my argument towards the idea that empire was a good thing. I think sometimes we have a tendency, because history, of course, is massively shaped by interpretation. History is a subjective art. You know, it's something, it's, it's really framed by the historian's perspective and the sources we choose to use, and that really shapes the narrative. But on the other hand, I, I don't think that means that it's an argument which can just be put up for debate. And I think sometimes there's a tendency 
to, to treat imperial history like it's something that we could just debate. And it's become that kind of topic. Why do you think the empire is such a heated topic, though, in particular? Why do you think that people feel so personally involved and invested in debates about empire? It's really striking to me. So I finished my PhD in 2013, so a decade ago. Right? And it's really striking to me how much this has shifted over the last decade. When I was finishing my PhD, I had no concern that the work I was doing would get picked up by a particular newspaper, say, and it would become a topic of contention or that there might be a kind of debate about it. I certainly had no concern that, you know, as we've seen kind of recently, when the National Trust released its report about slavery, for example, and the government stepped in to criticise it. Like, if someone had told me that 10 years earlier, that the field I worked in might attract government critique, like, it just, it, it, it's become a topic in the culture war empire, and it's become a shorthand for all sorts of identity questions, I think. Because there are plenty of other aspects of British history that we could have these types of debate about, and in fact, people who talk about empire are often told that we don't care about those things, right? So it's often like, oh, well, you know, why don't you write about white working class communities? You know, those people also had a terrible time in the past. And it's like, well, firstly, a lot of people do. That is actually a subject people write about. But it's that sort of sense that, you know, well, why are you focusing so much on this? It's really strange to me that this has become such such a huge issue. And of course, things like the Colston statue, which I write about at the end of my book, they became a kind of like a pivotal moment in the culture war because it became shorthand for so many frustrations from so many people, right, on both sides of, of that that kind of pulling down that statue. That sort of seemed to crystallise it all into this particular moment because there was a really obvious marker there of where you stood. You either thought the statue should stay or you thought it should go. And it is, like, by definition polarising because it's an argument which only has... There are two outcomes and they are innately opposed to one another you can't leave it like half up no one would be happy with that right so it there are some aspects of this i think because you are forced to pick a side that then make you kind of nail your colors to the mast and that then means that people kind of get very entrenched in their position the thing that's quite interesting i think about imperial history is like this movement to thinking more critically about empire this has been happening in the academy for a long time so the fact that people have kind of now jumped on this and gone oh all of these historians are kind of you know rewriting history it's like we've been doing this for ages (laughs) and people are just noticing now but actually it's not you know it's not a new thing exactly and so what's your take on how britain grapples with its imperial past today i think what's not helpful is that often the voices on one side of this debate get very caught up with how guilty people should feel should we feel guilty? Should we feel guilty for the past? It's like, well, no, you don't need to feel guilty for something you had no relationship to. That's fine. It's something that happened generations before. Equally, you know, if your great-grandfather stole something from someone and you still had it, you could probably give it back. I, I don't think there's necessarily a sort of binary between feeling guilty and not feeling guilty. I think we could say people don't need to feel bad about things that they didn't actually personally have a hand in. But institutionally and nationally, we could think a little bit more critically and perhaps reparatively about our relationship to empire and imperial people. And I also think we just need to get rid of the idea that Britain was humanitarian in its imperialism. That idea needs to go. We need to stop thinking of the British Empire as being uniquely good, as being uniquely kind of positive. We need to think about empire as being a dark moment in Britain's history. 
And then we need to think about the things that came out of it. We need to understand migration through empire. We need to understand Britain's heritage and museum sector through empire. We need to use it as a as a lens to look at stuff that's happening in Britain today because it's a really important explanatory kind of tool, actually. You know, individual people don't need to feel bad, but but institutionally we do need to think critically about how Britain benefited from imperialism and what we can do now with that. Um, how we might go about making that up, I think. And just as a final question to you, you say there that it can be a useful explanatory lens to explain aspects of Britain and British society today. I wonder if you could just end for us with a couple of concrete examples of where we can see the impact of imperialism in Britain today. I think one really important topic which needs empire to explain it is what became known as the Windrush scandal. Even the name is itself a kind of connection to empire because, of course, the Empire Windrush was the boat that brought a large number of of Jamaican people and people from other places as well to Britain in 1948. But it's important, I think, because a lot of the reporting about that, even the reporting about Windrush that was incredibly sympathetic to people who were being deported to countries they'd never lived in, incredibly kind of sympathetic and crusading on behalf of people who were, for example, unable to access healthcare because their citizenship was being challenged after they'd lived in this country for decades. A lot of that reporting still didn't actually understand legally why this was an issue, right? A lot a lot of the reporting talked about these people as being having granted British citizenship. Well, they, they didn't need to be. They were British all the time. It didn't understand why their citizenship was in question. This citizenship had been kind of codified in 1948. And then since 1962, it had been gradually chipped away at And there had been this lessening of migration and this kind of cracking down on migration from the Commonwealth, increasingly kind of hostile environment to people from people of colour kind of coming to Britain. There was very little understanding of why it was so difficult for these people to prove that they were British because they didn't need any documentation. The government didn't need to register them or give them any kind of certificate. The reporting of the topic, even when it was really supportive to these people, even when it tried very hard to understand their perspective, still didn't understand the imperial framework and the way that decolonisation had shaped their relationship to Britain and had made it uniquely difficult for them to demonstrate that they were British and that they'd been here for this amount of time. So that, I think, is one that's really clear. I think more broadly, when we talk about things like museum collections, every so often there'll be a debate where uh, a single item in a museum is kind of held up and we have a debate about whether it should be returned to where it came from. And it doesn't have to be actually in a museum. So, for example, the Koh-i-Noor diamond is another example of this, which is obviously part of the crown jewels. It's held in the Tower of London. Um, It actually has, you know, a ceremonial use in Britain. It's not just kind of in a glass case. It's, It's brought out various different ceremonial moments and worn by members of the royal family. And we always have this debate and it's always kind of framed around, oh, well, you know, the British can, we can look after it. We have the resources to look after this stuff properly and people can come and see it. There's often a real outrage on behalf of the British or by museums themselves or by British kind of museum goers. You know, well, we won't be able to see it anymore if it gets sent back. You know, why should we, why should we give it back? We, We want to be able to see these things. We want to be able to visit them and look at them. There's very little sense of how these things got here in the first place, how these things are part of a kind of imperial moment of plunder. So the Benin bronzes, for example, which are are stolen from northern Nigeria at this moment of conflict and are brought to Britain, are kind of separated and scattered. Actually, they're not just in Britain, they're in Germany and America and all sorts of places. They were brought here as spoils of war. They were 
scattered around the country and put in museum holdings. They're often not on display. They're often just in a vault somewhere. And these are, you know, sacred ceremonial items which are being used in Britain as, oh, you know, an example of an item from this place or, you know, something interesting to look at from this region. What's often really missing from narratives about, you know, should we hold on to them, should we give these things back, is a real sense of the context in which this stuff was being displayed in museums. It's being displayed in order to demonstrate British imperial prowess. It's being displayed to sort of show Britain's expansion around the globe. And it's being used to kind of create a corpus of of knowledge and items and objects that Britain can kind of point to as a a sort of heritage of of these incredible kind of artistic and cultural things, most of which don't come from Britain, right? Most most of which are only here and only have a kind of British history because it's an imperial British history. The British Museum is full of things which are are not from Britain, you know, have been found from all over the globe. And I think sometimes when we have these conversations, we, we don't think about actually, well, you know, why were we able to bring these things here in the first place and what does continuing to hold on to them say about our relationship to the cultures that they come from? That was Charlotte Lydia Riley speaking to me, Ellie Cawthorn. Charlotte's book, Imperial Island, A History of Empire in Modern Britain, is out now published by Bodley Head. And you can read a version of this interview in the September issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. Thank you.